Welcome to church. My name is uh, Pastor Russ. I'm glad that you chose to come out today. Uh, we have already broken Christmas stuff at our house. Any of you in that category, like you bought your kids something for Christmas, it's already breaking down. Uh, the reason I bring that up uh, is the fact that about this time in the year, a lot of the New Year ambition dies off. And stuff that you had ambitions for doing, achieving, going after, goals that you have set, they begin to, to wane. And, and as a result, you try to find up the courage to, to keep it going, to, to keep it get going to, to Valentine's at least, or to February at least, with whatever the uh, goals and hopes that you had for the year are. Uh, one of the things we learn in the process of setting New Year's resolutions and goals is that you have little to no control over how your year is going to go. Um, I mean, you can eat chicken all you want, and I, I know people that are very healthy and they still died young. And I, I know people that uh, basically went to the South House every day that the South House was open and ate fried food, and they're still kicking. It, it, sometimes it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Life isn't always fair. This is a broken kingdom and a broken world, and you can have good intentions and good goals. And it rains, the Bible says, on the righteous and the unrighteous, meaning sometimes it's going to rain on you even when you're trying to do good things. In fact, the Bible would go so far as to say when you decide to live a life aimed at Godward things, that you're going to meet opposition in this life, that the kingdom of this world is actually set up to oppose the work of God in your life. And for some of you, in your last week of living, you've experienced the fact uh, that the world's really good at opposing the things of God in your life and bringing the devil out of you and into your attitude and into your demeanor. And you've been crotchety, mean, and angry at everybody around you for the last week. Well, w welcome to church. The good news is, is that his mercy is sufficient for you. And we're in a sermon series that's looking at this very dilemma of keeping the momentum going in the new year. We've called the series first, and we've looked at several things so far. We looked at a practice at the end of last year, a consistent practice that if you did it consistently over time, it may not change your life in a moment, but over time, it would change your relationship with God. It's something that we saw modeled in the life of Jesus when he was on earth. Consistently, though he was busy, though he was in high demand, though he had plenty of things that he could have given his time to, we see Jesus often before his day begins and after his day ends withdrawing to get along with the Father. And so we talked about the proven practice of you and I making a consistent habit in the new year of getting along with God. How's it going? Some of you are like, I wasn't here that week. I'm not uh, to be held accountable for things that I wasn't here for. Well, that's why we have the YouTubes <laughs> and the Facebooks so that you can go and catch up on this. But we, we want you to make it a uh, consistent, habitual practice in your life this year that whether it's at the beginning or at the end or both and in the middle and in between, that you would just make a practice of getting along with God. The truth is a lot of the people that you look up to in the faith the only difference between you and them is that they are practicing and doing consistently the things that you do occasionally. And so we want you this year to remain in God, to abide in Him. And a way for us to remain and abide and surrender to the work of God is that we will withdraw and get along with Him consistently. So we, we talked about a practice. Then in the second week of the series, we talked about a priority. What are the things that God values? Are the things that are worrying me, filling my mind, taking up my time, are these things that are going to matter in light of eternity? And so we looked at the priorities that God has given us to live by. 
Jesus is preeminent. He is first. He's before all things, and in him, all things hold together. So if you feel like your life is falling apart, it's probably because the priority that is uh, cornerstone and chief and the glue of life has moved from being the main thing to being a secondary thing in your life. And so we challenged you to consider the ways in which Jesus has become a suggested idea or a sidekick or an option that you defer to but not the main priority that you live for. And so we looked at him being the priority. Out of Jesus, if you read the great commandment, Jesus says you're to love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as your self as yourself. And so the love of God and Jesus being the preeminent priority of our lives will naturally lead us to an overflowing patient love for our neighbor. So you're like, well, who is my neighbor? It's the person that you don't want to be your neighbor whenever you ask that question. The love of God is meant to affect that relationship on your end. If God is great and his love is what we see and read in the Bible, then I believe that when you abide in Christ, he gives you the ability to love your neighbor in a way that you do not currently believe they're worthy of, they are deserving of, or that you can actually give them because you're hurt too much by them. Notice Jesus, whenever he was asked the question, who is my neighbor, he told him the story of the Good Samaritan who was considered to be an enemy of everyone that was in the nation of Israel. So we talked about a practice, we talked about a priority, and then uh, last week we talked about a submission. How does the Christian life work? Well, the Christian life, before you became a follower of Jesus, you live by the direction of your soul, your volition, your consciousness. Whatever you liked, whatever you desired, you went after, you did it, and the end result of Allowing your conscience to have whatever it desires and whatever it longs for and whatever it wants to take comfort in is you find yourself in a place of want. You still need more. It's never enough. You can't get any satisfaction, said St. Mick Jagger. Thank you. Uh, That ain't right. I'm just joking. It's just just a joke. Calm down, okay? Okay. Calm down. It's, it's a joke. We don't believe he's, a, and he may be, if he gave his life to Jesus, he's a saint Christ Jesus, even if his hips don't lie. I'm just saying. <laughs> but you can't find satisfaction when the soul is in the driver's seat of your life. Why, why is that the state that we're in? Well, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. That means our soul directs our body to do simple things against God instead of worshiping God with the body that he has given us which means we're spiritually dead. God communicates and lives in communion with us by the Spirit. So what is the promise of the New Testament and the work of Christ? That Jesus is going to put his Spirit inside of us. He's going to give us a new mind and a new heart that will now desire him. And now we'll live surrendered to his Spirit so that our volition and our soul no longer get to determine what is good and evil, whatever's trustworthy and untrustworthy. Are you tracking with me? And so the Spirit now has taken control. So our daily ambition, if we want to live a life that honors God, is a life that surrenders to the Spirit, that directs our soul to now take desires that are telling us that something's off and something's amiss, to not bring just our solutions, but God-sized solutions to those emotions so that we can direct our bodies in an act of worship instead of an act of rebellion against God. It's been a humdinger of a series. I hope you've enjoyed it. We're going to land the plane on it today with a sermon called Stir the Longing. How do you keep it going? We've got to stir the longing. You've got to stir the longing. Stir the longing. If you want to keep it going, you've got to stir the longing. If you have your Bibles, open up to Psalm 
chapter 61. Psalm chapter 61. Uh, I want to read this psalm to you. I want to talk to you about the heart of it. And then I want to invite you into a practice this week corporately as a church to stir the longing for the Lord. There's some things that I want you to see about this psalm. Psalm chapter 61 in your notes. It says, for the choir director, a psalm of David to be accompanied by stringed instruments. That's in the NLT. If you read in the ESV and look at the background of this, it's going to say that this is a wilderness psalm. It's a psalm for the wilderness. It's a psalm that David is believed to have written when he was in the wilderness of of Judah, uh, surrounded by enemies that wouldn't let him back into town. So he's got so many enemies that he can't be seen in public, so he's off in the wilderness. And it's believed that that's when David wrote Psalm 61. Here's the word of God for the people of God. Eight verses. Let's look at it together. Oh God, listen to my cry. Hear my prayer. From the ends of the earth, I cry to you for help. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the towering rocks of safety. Let me live. Okay. How many of you have ever written down by two chapters the wrong verse of Scripture and realized it when you're in the first verse of reading it? (laughs) Just happened. (laughs) Somehow... I wrote Psalm 61 in my notes. You know where we're at? Psalm 63. Where it says in the header, a psalm of David David regarding a time when David was in the wilderness of Judah. Which is what I was actually trying to get to. That never happened. Verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you. In this parched and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in your sanctuary and gazed upon your power and glory. Your unfailing love is better than life itself. How I praise you. I will praise you as long as I live, lifting up my hands to you in prayer. You satisfy me more than the richest feast. I will praise you with songs of joy. I lie awake thinking of you, meditating on you through the night. Because you are my helper. I sing for joy in the shadow of your wings. And then look look at this, verse 8. I cling to you. Your strong right hand holds me securely. I cling to you. Your strong right hand holds me securely. These eight verses, this is what I want to look at and then jump into this idea of stirring our affection for the Lord. So first, let's mark the note that he's in the wilderness. Uh, This is how I want my life to be lived, but I don't want to live it in the wilderness. This psalm of longing in the wilderness is a place that's giving us a setting that many of us know. It's a place where uh, resources are slim, where everything is difficult. It's difficult to get up. It's difficult to live. It's difficult to hope. It's difficult to believe. It's difficult to hold on. It's difficult to find a meal. It's difficult to sustain. It's difficult to endure. When you're in the wilderness, everything that once was easy and assumed becomes complex and hard. I wonder if anybody currently or in the not-so-distant past has been in the wilderness where easy things, simple things, assumed things become challenging, time-consuming, life-consuming things in your life. David is in the wilderness. It's a wilderness season. But there's a gift to the wilderness. The gift of the wilderness is that the things that you assumed and overlooked, that you thought always would be there, 
now become the things that you value and focus your time and attention on. The wilderness is where you get back to the basics. The wilderness is where you get essential clarity for what is actually essential for living. How many of you who have wandered from the wilderness and gone back into a land or time or life of plenty have gotten to a state where you've got so much good things that the God things are just in a mixed bag of everything else that you call good and now perhaps are believing is an essential need in your life? See, the, the wilderness begins to sift out the good things from the God things. The temporal things from the eternal things. Many of you this year have temporal things that you desire, that you've aimed for, that you're going after, and they're not bad. But what's bad about temporal things is that at times they can consume all of your life's eye, all of your life's vision, all of your life's focus. And when doing so, you begin to think that they are the things that are sustaining you. They are the things that are enduring you. They are the things that are worthy of your time and affection in your life. No, it's in a place of scarcity that David begins to reflect on what is eternal, where David begins to reflect on what matters. Look at verse 1. He says this, Oh God, you are my God. I know it's simple, but do you know you have a God? Do you know that there's a God that has you? That he's holding you, carrying you, enduring you? See, this is the beauty of a wilderness clarity. In wilderness clarity, he remembers his identity. I am God's, and God has allowed me to be identified by him. I belong to God. I walk with God. I'm led by God. I'm shepherded by God. I'm protected by God. I have a God, and that is where I begin the foundation of who I am by remembering that I belong and I'm walking in the path of a God that loves me. So he starts with his identity. You are my God, which then leads him to being able to identify his purpose. Why am I here? What on earth has God left me here for? I'm suffering. I'm not really making it. I'm drowning. I'm going through a difficult season. Why is life still worth living? Look at verse 1 in the second part. You're my God. That's his identity. I earnestly search for you. Life is about living in the pursuit of God. The purpose for living. The, the reason we go on in wilderness seasons is that we have been created to walk in fellowship and in pursuit of him. If it's not about him, it will not last. As uh, Chuck Smith once was famously quoted with saying, who started all the Calvary Chapel movements, all too soon this life will pass and it's only the things that are done for Christ that will last. And so if it's not about searching for him in what you do, if it's not about making him the aim, getting the honor in what you do, then at the end of the day, it's a chasing after the wind and it will be meaningless in the end. Consider this. Last year, many of you had a list of worries. I wish you had tracked them. I wish you had written them down. But how many of them are current crises in your life? How many of them, how many of the things that you gave your life to that were good things are things that are going to matter, that, that, that still are preeminent in the focus of your life, but how, and how many of them are things that you've already forgotten about and assumed, but you had to have them last year? You gave all of your affection and made yourself sick over getting them last year. It was going to satisfy you. It was going to give you peace last year, but now you're still restless. Now you're still in need. Now you're still having to replace the batteries on the things that were supposed to sustain you, but you're having to sustain them by changing out their power source within them. 
Your purpose in life is to live a life that is fueled by and aimed towards the glory of God. It is only the things that are done for him that last. It is only the things that are done for him that in the end of your life will matter. So he remembers his identity in verse 1. He remembers his purpose in verse 1. And then he begins to remind himself of his desire when he's had everything this world could offer in the land of plenty. And now he's been brought back to a land of being leveled back to the foundation. Look at what his desire is. My soul thirsts for the land of plenty. My soul thirsts for a table with food on it. My soul thirsts for no enemies surrounding me. My soul thirsts for everything being made right on my terms. No, no, my soul when you strip it down and you give me a moment of clarity that I am prone to run from, my soul thirsts for you. My soul thirsts for God. I don't need people to be at peace with me. I need to be at peace with God. If I'm at peace with God, then he'll deal with me getting to a place of peace with people. But if I have peace with people and I don't have peace with God, I don't have any peace. How many of you are presuming and assuming that right now you just need worldly fixes instead of a fix for a soul that recognizes it's been made for, to aim for, to pursue, to long after God? I need God. I want God. And here's the problem. Here's the problem. I'm a couple of weeks into the year, and I'm beginning to convince myself that what I need, that what my soul longs for is a raise, that what my soul longs for is more money in my bank account, that what my soul longs for is a championship win for my team, that what my soul needs, what my soul longs for are kids that are compliant and obedient, that what my soul longs for, what my soul needs is a wife that does what I want when I want her to do it. Look, these are the evil desires of the soul that make me think that other people around me are going to satisfy me. And what I have to remind myself, jokingly or not, as I'm reading some of your mail, is that your soul is a liar when unchecked by the Spirit of God. And if you could get in the wilderness and see what your soul really needs, you would return from it with a thirst for God, knowing that He is the only thing that can satisfy your soul. My soul thirsts for you. I'm in the wilderness. Water may be limited. Wells may not be in active demand or invisibility for me to go and get a drink of water from. But what I know, what I know in this moment of clarity that has come from the wilderness is I need you. I want you. I don't need a vacation. I don't need a promotion. I don't need a change of friendships and relationships. I don't need another experience. I need you. To the point that I'm sick over it. Look at what he says in verse 1. My whole body longs for you. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I want this song to mark my attitude and my perspective of God in the way that I live. But if I'm being honest for you, I read that line and I think, David, you're over the top. David, the idea that you're sick over longing for, waiting on, like that, that's, just, that's just over the top. And, and most of my life is not spent with a longing in my flesh for God's communion, for God's presence. In verse 1, David in the wilderness gets a wilderness clarity. Wilderness clarity comes when you remember who you are, when you remember what you're here to do, your purpose, when you remember the desire when in line with the Spirit of God has been given to you for and the longing that comes from, from it. I'm longing for you. My body longs for you. So then that, he begins to reflect. Look at what he reflects on. 
I have seen you in your sanctuary. How many of you have been in the communion of saints and you've experienced God in a powerful way? Like you, 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 can, you can look back on that Easter in 86, back when everyone had Reba bangs and the Reba's hairstyles. You remember that? Yeah. Back whenever Hurt Franklin hadn't even hit the block yet and begun to put out music. And you can, you can go back and you're like, man, it was just like God was present in the room. This is where David's at. He's thinking back. I, I, I remember your presence with your people when we were gathered in the sanctuary. I've seen you. I've seen your presence amongst your people. I've seen your power. I've seen your glory. He says it in the second part of verse 2. And I've gazed upon your power and glory. And he begins to reflect on the longing for the manifest presence of God. The moments where you cannot deny that God was active. Because if we're being honest, we don't always walk around with that realization, with, with, with that kind of over-sensation of knowing that God is actively there and you can't deny it and you can't get away from it. I mean, I've had moments where I've experienced in corporate worship as the saints were gathered together to honor and to hear from and to glorify God, moments where I just cannot deny that God's presence was uniquely there. And, And when I'm in seasons where it's tough, seasons where I read the wrong chapter of the Bible on the front end of a sermon, seasons where it's not going well, I long for the days where it was just easy in the presence of God. You just knew. You didn't have to work for or try to discern or try to hear or try, or try to find the presence. Like, you just knew he was there. I remember going through a season in my life over eight months. We baptized 463 people. Every Sunday for eight months, we were baptizing people. It was a full-blown revival. I would be at work on a Tuesday, and college students would pull in, coming off the college campus that was on the hill as they drove by the church. They would pull in, and they would say, we heard this is the place to come if you want to get right with God. And on Tuesdays, just people coming by the office to give their life to the Lord. It was a crazy experience, a unique time. I've seen the power and the glory of God. I want it to be a season that we experience in our church, in our time. But that reflection, that longing, it builds in the wilderness. So he's got a wilderness clarity in verse 1. He gets wilderness reflections in verse 2. And then he gets wilderness praise, satisfaction, and focus. That's what we see over the next few Verses. He remembers the goodness of God and he says this, Your unfailing love is better than life itself. How I praise you. He doesn't just long for the day where God was active in the sanctuary. He remembers that what made God so noble in the sanctuary in the presence of people was that God was unfailing in his love and in his kindness towards them. So he begins to do what in the wilderness? What does David begin to do? He begins to praise. He's not out of the wilderness, but he chooses to not allow the wilderness to define his perspective. He's not let the wilderness define his future. And so he begins to do what doesn't seem reasonable in the wilderness. You've got to go get food, David. You've got to go find water, David. You've got to find a place to sleep and be protected from your enemies, David. And David's like, no, 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 we've got to praise. We, we, th- these things are secondary to praising God. Praising God is primary. He, he gets this wilderness clarity, this praise. Your unfailing love. Praise becomes his life in the wilderness. What are your hobbies in the wilderness, David? I praise God. Uh, think about it. How many of you have hundreds of hobbies and very limited lanes of praise and times of praise in your 
life. Perhaps the best gift God could give you is he would give you a wilderness where the hobbies no longer distract you, satisfy you, and keep you from what you need most in your life. He begins to reflect on the love of God, and he begins to praise God, so much so that he begins to say stuff like this. Verse 4, I will praise you as long as I live, lifting up my hands to you in prayer. You satisfy me more. You satisfy me more than a marriage that's perfect, than a job that gives me opportunities to be promoted, seen, elevated, worshipped, more than a full table of food, more than, more than, and you can fill in the blank. David says, you satisfy me more than the richest feast, and I will praise you with songs of joy. That tells you that there is a distinction between joy and happiness, folks. Happiness can be determined by outward circumstances. I'm happy because I got the meal that I want. I'm happy because it's Sunday and someone was smart enough to freeze Chick-fil-A from Saturday so I could eat it on a Sunday. That's happy. Joy, joy is completely different. Joy is something that abides within the soul, within the heart. Joy is something that can help you when you're anchored to the God who is giving you reason for joy in the storms of life and in the difficulties that you are going through in your life. You see, David is in the wilderness, but he's got clarity, and he's, through reflection, come to a place of praise, and he's gotten back to doing what he was created to do, and that is finding his satisfaction and his focus and his praise and joy in the Lord. Notice what happens. Verse 6, I lie awake thinking of you, meditating on you through the night. Because you are my helper, I sing for joy in the shadow of your wings. And then he says this, this is, my, this, this is my life ambition. I cling to you. Here's the deal. I want to be a wilderness clinger that doesn't have to live in the wilderness to cling. But for some reason, I keep having to go back to the wilderness to cling. Israel never struggled with clinging to God whenever they were in captivity. You get Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in captivity. You get Daniels in captivity. But every time Israel built that city wall back, every time Israel started to have crops that overflowed their vats and their storage facilities, man, clinging to God became secondary. I want to get to a place where I do not have to be in a battle, where I do not have to be in a struggle in order to cling to God. You see, drift is always a battle in a land of abundance. I want you to sit on that. Drift is always the battle when you're in a land of abundance. We've got options. I don't have to wake up and depend on God. I feel a sense that I got this. Ooh, that's a dangerous day. I don't need to get up and bend my knee and praise God and worship God. Oh, that's, that's a dangerous day. I'm probably going to make it. I'm probably going to live. I'm probably going to survive if I do not make God the preeminent priority of my life. That's a dangerous day. You're in a land of abundance. And you're not fighting the battle of drifting in your heart from God in the abundance that you have. Drift is always the battle in a land of abundance. So here's my question. How do you stir the longing for God in the land of plenty? 
How do you stir a longing for God, a, a wilderness clinginess, when you have plenty? Well, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's a consistent practice that was practiced by the people of God so that they would not forget their need of God. And it was called fasting. Fasting is when you have plenty and you choose to set it aside for what matters most. It's a consistent practice of people who know their need of and the need for intervention from God in their life. Now, fasting is not a health benefit that you and I take so that we can get skinny. Fasting is not a way for us to indebt God to us so that he then hears us because we are emaciating ourselves from food and then putting God in debt to having to do what we desire for him to do. That's man-made versions of taking God's thing and using it for man's purpose, which is not the depend- deepening the dependency on God, but you and I, through the attempt of fasting, doing everything that we can to try and make God look at us and think that we're something special beyond what he already has said we are in him. How many of you do your religious practices? You're counting right now with God. I showed up to church. I read my Bible three times this week. I prayed before I ate. How many of you count, and in your mind, you make that the justification for why God is or isn't moving in your life? How many of you think that God can't move in your life right now because you've not done enough internally? Just not done enough. I need to do more. The the, the gospel does not begin by you going and doing. The gospel begins by you sitting in what he's already done. If you've not sat in what he has done, then you do not need to worry about walking as his ambassador in what he is doing. It starts with sitting, abiding, remaining in him. But man-made religion takes things like fasting, which is doing, and we put it in as a priority of us doing something that then will allow us to rest in God, that then will allow us to sit in his peace that then will allow us to sit and receive his blessings in our life. No, no, no. You sit in his blessings, and it's out of his blessings, and out of his peace, and out of his rest that we then go about our doing. So don't take fasting as a means for you to indebt God to you. Take fasting as a means for you to stir the clinginess, to stir the desperation, to stir the desire of your need for him in your life. So how do you fast? Well, the good news is the Bible teaches us really quick. Matthew chapter 6 verses 16 to 18, it says this, when you fast, which then tells us the first part, you will have seasons of fasting in your life. You're going to fast. So the first thing that we should understand about fasting is that fasting is not suggested, it is expected. If you want to live a life that's desperate for God, that doesn't lose its fire, then there are going to be seasons where you're going to get so much plenty that if you do not fast from the plenty you will then drift from the God that is the actual need of the life and the soul. I'm making sense. When you fast. This is Jesus teaching on the three highest values within Jewish culture, which was prayer, almsgiving, and fasting. 
And so Jesus comes and he rephrases. He looks at what the people had taken from the law and what they were doing with these practices, and he reframes it within God's intent, within God's heart of it. So he says, when you fast, don't make it obvious as the hypocrites do. For they try to look miserable, disheveled, or disheveled, so people will admire them for their fasting. I tell you the truth, that is the only reward that they will ever get from what they are doing. When you fast, Jesus doesn't eliminate fasting, but he eliminates fasting for the purpose of catching the eye of man instead of the eye of God. You see, you and I can fast longing for the presence of God, or you can fast longing for the attention of people, but you can't do both. You and I can fast longing for the presence of God, or we can do it longing for the presence of man, but you cannot do both. So when you fast, it's either about you, as David is in the wilderness, longing for God, stirring your affection for God, removing the distraction so that God can become the primary focus of your life, or fasting can be about you, getting respect and clout from the community around you so they think, oh, they deserve more from God. Why isn't God moving on their behalf? Oh, they're such a great saint. Let me be very clear. I am not consumed with a crowd of Christians seeing and thinking that I'm something that I may or may not be. I am consumed with being the real deal when it comes to longing for God. I don't want to get up and play a part for you that makes you think I'm a great Christian, that I'm not going to then outside of this pulpit and platform and public eye not go out and pursue with a genuine heart that desires and longs for God. When you fast, don't do it like the hypocrites do. So why, why do you fast if it's not to be seen? If it's to be seen by God, why, why do you fast? Well, there's several reasons that we see in Scripture. I'm going to run down through them quickly, and then I've given you one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight days worth of quiet times in the sermon notes that you all scan with the QR code at the beginning of the sermon as obedient people that want to be connected to a church that longs for you to be connected in community with that church so that you could grow as a disciple of Christ this year. Since you've already all scanned the QR code, you already all have my sermon notes, you can go back through this as I go through it in a rapid-fire way to explain to you the reasons for and the motivations behind why we fast. Okay. Reasons we fast. To strengthen, our, to, strength, to strengthen earnest prayer in our life. We see this in the book of Ezra, in the book of Joel, and in the book of Acts. There are some times where you're struggling for an earnestness in prayer, therefore you fast so that you pray longer, so that you can be honest, so that you get to the root and pray in a more earnest way. When you're seeking clear guidance, the Bible says to fast. Judges chapter 20 and Acts chapter 14 speak to this. When you're requesting his deliverance or protection, sometimes you fast because you want to focus on his character and be reminded of his constancy in your life. Humbling yourselves before him whenever you feel yourself getting arrogant, prideful, independent from him. That's a reason to fast. We see that in 1 Kings chapter 21 and Psalm chapter 35. Whenever you're expressing repentance to him, 1 Samuel chapter 7 verse 6 and Jonah chapter 3 verses 5 to 8. Whenever you repent, sometimes you fast. In seasons of grief, 
and your heart's sick over the losses you've experienced in your life, it's appropriate in those times to eliminate the secondary things of your life so that you can focus on the primary thing in your life. So fasting is appropriate in seasons of grief. In overcoming temptation, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, or as a means of expressing devotion to God. This list is not exhaustive, but here's everything I found as I was going through my Bible this week for reasons for why we do fast. By definition, fasting is the intentional removal of distraction for the singular purpose of focusing on and fellowshipping with God. Let me make sure you get this definition. Fasting, by definition, is the intentional removal of distraction for the singular purpose of focusing and fellowshipping with God. This is why we fast. I want to see Him. I want to depend on Him. I want to know Him. And right now my eyes and my mind and my heart are being tempted to be anything but devoted and focused and resting in the Word and in the work of God. So I'm I'm going to eliminate the things that are pulling my devotion, that are pulling my attention, that are pulling my affection away from God. Jesus was confronted in Matthew uh, chapter 6, verse 25. He said this, Matthew 6, That is why I tell you, do not worry about everyday life. Don't worry about it. Now, don't you hate that kind of advice? I'm worried, God. Don't. I'm filled with anxiety, God. Don't be anxious. Look at what he says. Don't worry about life. Whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear, isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? For some of us in America, the answer to that first part is no. We spend days talking about restaurant recommendations and restaurant experiences and where we're going to go. We have more restaurants per capita than anyone in the history of the world. I mean, you go down to Greenwood, South Carolina, a town with 17,000 people, and back in 2006 when we lived there, they had more restaurants per capita than anywhere else in the country. That's what we're known for in Greenwood. Restaurants and a lake. That's what we got. In Jesus' time, if you were going to eat multiple meals a day. You would wake up and have to go and find the ingredients to prepare that food. You didn't have a freezer. You didn't have a way to store food long term. You could short term store food, but you had a very limited supply. So you spent a lot of your life being worried about where the next meal was going to come from. For some of you that grew up with parents that came out of the depression, you, you know what I'm talking about. They never took for granted any kind of food. They were always thinking, God, even if it was a fried bologna sandwich or an egg sandwich or a piece of bread with a thing of cheese on it that wasn't even melted. I mean, you just were grateful because you had another meal. Well, in Jesus' time, uh, the life of those that believed in God could be consumed with just finding more food. To the point that prayer could be forsaken. To the point that aiming your life after worshiping and honoring God could become secondary. So it makes sense that in the Bible, with so much attention being given to gathering and making and providing food, that that most of the fasting that we see in the Bible was a fasting from food, which took up all of your time in the Bible, so that you could give that time back to the Lord. That's the idea of fasting. It's taking this majority of time and using it for God's purpose. Now, in Matthew chapter 9, 
Jesus is confronted about why his disciples aren't fasting like giants. Like the Pharisees and the Sadducees often did. They would fast weekly, Sadducees and Pharisees, on Thursdays. So the question comes to Jesus, why aren't your disciples fasting? And in Matthew chapter 9, verse 14 and 15, one day the disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus and asked him, why don't your disciples fast like we do and the Pharisees do? And Jesus replied, do wedding guests mourn while celebrating with the groom? I'm here. The whole point of fasting was for him. So this is the problem. The point of fasting for the Pharisees, the point of fasting for the Sadducees, had nothing to do with actually wanting him. It was wanting respect. It was wanting God to be indebted to them. So hear me out. I'm not inviting you into a fast so that God can owe you something, so that you can get what you want from God this year. I'm inviting you into fast because you want uh, into a fast because you want Him. This is the point. Do wedding guests mourn while celebrating the groom? Of course not. But someday the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will what? See, fasting is a means for keeping a readiness for the return of Christ. I want you to hear that. It's a means for us to be ready for Christ. Many of us aren't ready for Christ to move by His Spirit in our day, much less ready for Christ to blow the trumpet and for the scroll in the sky to be rolled back for Him to come through and return. But fasting is a way that we stay ready. Fasting is a way that we keep focused on the main thing within temporal distractions. You see, back in Jesus' time, the bridegroom would prepare uh, an addition to his father's house after he was betrothed to the person that he was going to marry. So he would, uh, through his parents, enter into an agreement and uh, know that he's going to marry. There would be limited to any interaction with his wife. But he would then build a longing for his bride as he was away preparing a house that was built onto his father's house and his father's legacy that would have room for him to come back and start a family for him and his family there. So the betrothal process took however long it took the bridegroom, or excuse me, the groom, to get the house ready. You tracking with me? But then, unexpected, the groom would show up with his entourage and he would announce his arrival by blowing the shofar. And so the bridegroom knows she's betrothed, knows that there's a day coming where they're going to be united together. And she's in a engagement period where she's waiting on the trumpet of the bridegroom. I get, we get weird because, you know, some dudes are in here like, I'm not the bridegroom, I'm the groom. No, you're the bridegroom, dude, chill out. Like, don't be weird about it. Here's what's great. Jesus is going to come back. And the way he's going to come back, it says in Scripture, is that the trumpets are going to announce his arrival. When he went to go be with the Father, he said, behold, I go to prepare a place. You see the imagery? I'm preparing a place for you, and I'm going to come back for you. No one knows the hour or the minute or the time that I'm going to come back. But when I come, it will not be a silent night. It will not be unannounced. The whole world will know about his return. Now, as the bridegroom, 
It is our job to be waiting with a devoted patience. It is our job to be longing for the day where the trumpet blows. Luke chapter 12, verse 35 to 40. Be dressed for service and keep your lamps burning. How many of you are not dressed for the service of our Lord and your lamps are not lit? All because you didn't stir the affection. You got lost in the land of plenty. I know I'm landing it late. As tough as though you were waiting for your master to return from the wedding feast. Then you will be ready to open the door and let him in the moment he arrives and knocks. The servants who are ready and waiting for his return will be rewarded. I tell you the truth, he himself will seat them, put on, put on an apron, and serve them as they sit and eat. But how many of you are not dressed for service and you are not waiting? So here's what we're doing. Next week we're going to talk about the vision and direction that our church is going to go in in this new year. Our elders, our leaders have been praying when you leave today, we're going to invite you to, on Wednesday, do something that maybe you've never done before. We're going to invite you to a fast of some type, some fashion. The point of fasting is to eliminate the things that are distracting you that are secondary so that you can focus on what is primary. Let me be very clear. You do not get to put your spouse and your kids in the things that you're fasting from category this week. See, I know this church, and I know some of you are suckers, and you're sitting here, and you're like, oh, yeah, the thing that takes me away from the Lord is my children. So someone come deal with them because I'm fasting from them for the week. God. Three things I'm suggesting. You can Google fast. You can look on your Bible app, and you can see lots of versions and ideas of fast. Three things I'm suggesting. Two of them are food fast. One is called the Daniel fast. It's outlined in this handout that we're going to give you. It takes time to prepare for it. That's why we're giving you 48 hours to put in your Walmart grocery order so that you don't have to get out and waste the calories and going to get it. We know that you're going to have to conserve calories if you're going to fast for five days. So for some of you, you know, you don't have a lot. You're going to whittle away. So you got 48 hours to consider it, look at it. That's a Daniel fast. Another kind of fast, this is one of my favorites, is a 6 to 6 fast. From 6 a.m. in the morning to 6 p.m. in the evening, you abstain from everything but water and or juice, depending on your dietary needs. Some of you have unique dietary needs. We did not consider everyone's dietary gluten something, allergy, and what you may or may not need or what you may or may not be able to do. I am not your doctor. I'm your pastor. So you may need to consult with this, but the idea is that from 6 in the morning to 6 in the evening, you would abstain from the eating of food, and when you would normally eat, you would go and find a spot that you could get away and get along with God, and you could pursue God and pray for God. Let me be very clear. I don't want you just going hungry. For some of you, you're going to take up a food fast, and you're just going to go hungry because you're not going to pursue God. The whole point of a food fast is that when you would normally be preparing for and talking about and eating food, you would be sitting at the feet of God. And if you're not sitting at the feet of God, if you're not pursuing God in prayer, during those times, then you're just emaciating yourself and it's a waste. God's not going to owe you anything because you skipped three meals. Some of you could use a, a skip or two. Okay? Six to six fast. The idea of a six to six fast is that at 6 p.m., you would have friends over that are doing a six to six fast with you. You would share a meal and you would talk about what God has done in that day as you've pursued Him at least once or twice. Two food fasts. Here's the third fast. This is probably what the majority of you should do if we're trying to eliminate distractions so that we can focus on God. It's called a social media fast. 
It's where you get rid of screens that are making you discontent with the life that you have. It's an amazing thing. Who knows what will happen when your face is not in the screen and it's in the Word of God? Who knows? Some are like, I can't read the Bible in a year. You might be able to read the Bible in five days with how much time some of us spend on our screen. My average daily screen time last week, Confession Church, was seven hours and three minutes. Seven hours and three minutes of prayer. Seven hours and three minutes of reading the Word. I can't read that much. Well, maybe you would sleep more and you'd be more rested. It's amazing what would happen if some of you would eliminate the things that are keeping you from the Lord. So you're going to get this. We're inviting you starting on what day? Wednesday to join us. And in your fasting and time of prayer, I'm asking you, would you pray for me as your pastor? Our church has grown year over year at an exponential rate. I'm scared to death of what that, what that looks like. I don't like getting bit by sheep. And the more sheep come, the more chances of me getting bit. Would you pray for me and my family? There's unique spiritual warfare and spiritual attack that the leaders of the church go through because if he can disunify us, then there'll be a lack of clarity that'll happen within the congregation, which means we can get off mission and become, make secondary things primary things and we cease being a church that's filled with the Spirit of God and we begin just being a country club that's gathered for the approval of people. Don't want to do that. So would you pray for us? Would you pray for your church in your fast that God would lead and direct us into fruitful ministry? Whatever that looks like, you move as the Lord leads. I don't have time, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to stand up. We're going to stand up and take communion as we get ready for this fast.